let's say it bursts next month, then I'd rather be on the Mark Cuban side of the bet. If it bursts in four years, I'd rather be on the S&P 500 side of the bet. Yeah, interesting. I, so if you were picking two stocks for 10 years, what would they be? They have to be stocks, so I can't say Dogecoin. <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Good morning, Skippy. Welcome to May. Oh, it's I'm so excited to be here. Is this the um, pizza podcast? Am I in the right spot? Don't even, don't even go back. Do you, I actually, I got some comments on uh, your inability to understand what good pizza is, which, I, which I was kind of like, how, how did you even pull? All he was doing was reading from a list. Like, why? why, yeah, why is this was not attack? my recommendations. I was like, hey, when I was in Columbia, Missouri, like I hit up Shakespeare's. I didn't say like Shakespeare's is the world's greatest pizza. So this is, I mean, I told you already that you're gonna get me fired up this morning, but. If the listeners want to have a real debate about quality pizza, let's get it going. But first of all, yeah, it's just a list, man. Could I could I request that we don't get it going, even if they do want to have that debate? Can I just throw that? Jiggles, give the people what they want. I'll tell you what the listeners want. You want you know what they want? They want to talk about debt, baby. So here we Wait. go. <laughs> you're no? always singing, soon. man. Last time you were singing about taxes, now it's debt. Now it's <laughs> it's, gotta, it's gotta be just a, it's only when the most exciting topics come up. That I break yeah, out man. the vocalities. We we talk about how things are at record levels all the time, and this is uh, as you brought up right last week. We're at record cash levels in a number of ways, but also record debt levels, right? As you you were saying, like yeah. there's cash everywhere, there's debt everywhere. So I just went and grabbed some numbers, um, and I'll, I'll drop a few of the numbers for you, and, and they're in some of the categories we talked about before. So S and P five hundred, if you just look at them, record cash held by them, it's one point nine trillion dollars, right? Held across the S and P five hundred. And debt of ten point five six trillion. Woo. Okay. Woo. I love these numbers. So first of all, can Biden just call up those five hundred companies, five hundred ish companies, and be like, "Hey, I can you help me with my infrastructure plan?" Little hook. No, up because here? they can't. Because <laughs> they have too much debt. <laughs> they, they like they can't even they can't even do it. Um, if you look, I found this uh, this one chart. Um, I think it was, it was in the Wall Street Journal that looks at the, the average short-term liquidity ratio of investment grade bond issuers. Yeah. In the US, we're approaching 100%. It's like a 97%. And this is, this is second only in line to coming out of the, uh, the great financial crisis that we're at where we hit 100%. Things shot up last year. Um, so that, that's, that's companies. Then looked at the personal savings rate, right? Which, uh, which we talked about before. Personal savings rate. So this is the the rate at which in the U.S. right folks are saving money, and this is we are in a like we're not comparable to anything that's existed before. On average, if you look, uh, the Fed has this chart. We can throw it out on Twitter. The Fed has this chart that goes back to the 1950s as to what the personal savings rate was from 1960 to roughly mid 1990s. Let's call it. We're about 10 percent. And then it dropped down considerably. We just decided it, the savings isn't a thing that isn't, it's un-American. Yeah. And, uh, and so then it dropped down to about 5% for a while, started to climb up, but then shot up. I mean, last year it went to so the beginning of last year, we we're about 7%, shot up to over 30%. 
last year, people just not going out and spending on, uh, on pizza. Um, and so craziness and then, but record consumer debt. What do you think record, the record consumer debt is? The record, this is, you're still talking as like a right percentage. Now. Yeah. No, 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 no. This is actual, just the, the amount, the dolores in debt that consumers in the U.S. have. Oh, I'm going to go 7 trillion. Keep, keep on keeping on. What? One more again. Yeah. Uh, let's go 11. Keep going. Oh, what? you're insulting me. Keep on going. No, it's higher than 11 trillion. Yes. There's 330 million people in this country. We don't care uh, how many people. Yeah, true that. Uh, $20 trillion. Okay, now you're getting silly. $14.56 <laughs> trillion in debt. Uh, the biggest category is mortgage, of course. But like that is, it's insane, man. Like It's really insane. Um, if you go back 15 years ago, we were at $8 trillion. So we're, I mean, we're just debt, debt, wow. debt, debt, debt. Wow. Um, it's problematic. Which we knew, but those numbers are a little breathtaking. I mean, they're big. It's like this, the low interest, you know, as we've, we've, we've discussed how, you know, low interest rates are a thing that like can prop up a market and how that might influence CAPE and whatnot. But you see how, how much of like a shoestring, you know, everything's kind of hanging on around low interest. Whereas I, cause, cause companies are taking this debt. And they're doing buybacks and paying dividends. They're not paying down their debt because it doesn't finance in the short term. It doesn't financially make sense to pay down the debt. However, <laughs> if that interest rate starts to change, then it then it makes real good short term sense to pay down the debt, and you don't have as much cash anymore. Yeah. Well, you know what's crazy about the S and P five hundred stats, and this is the first time I'm I'm hearing it, but just trying to process this out loud. Like Apple and Berkshire represent of the total cash holdings i think apple and berkshire represent like roughly 10 percent of that on their own i mean yeah. maybe more so uh there's a lot of debt everywhere and, and they're to your point like this is what you're trying to tie together right there should be a lot of debt because interest rates are crazy low and so smart businesses and smart people are going to use that to their advantage but you can't lose sight of that because when things unravel, uh, that's gonna what what when you talk about personal savings rate, it makes me wonder if the unwinding could be slightly less severe because the personal savings rate uh, at the uh, with retail investors are up so much. I mean, there should be a little more cash in your average person's bank account, a little more than average. So um, that might help with some cushion. I think that that's that's right. If you uh, if you look at it in the confines of an individual and just like their bubble life, but yeah. not if you start to look at the uh, the ecosystem and say, what if their company's not around anymore? Like so, yeah. you have this personal savings, but now you don't have it's you don't have your your job at your company, and it's harder to get another job potentially, right? It depends on what happens there, because if it's and this is not every company. Right. But if you're if if a company has debt and they're using it primarily for uh, dividends and buybacks and they're not I'm talking larger companies, right, publicly traded and they're not using it for R&D to fuel future cash flows or they're not using it to pay down debt, then like companies can unravel. Large companies can unravel so much faster. So I don't know. I, I hear you, though. Like they, a human being as an individual could last a little bit longer, but maybe they don't have future cash flows. I don't know. Yeah. It's yeah. a lot. It's just a lot of like, there's, we're just fragile. Like everything's just so fragile. 
Go ahead. So let, let me just tie back to uh, the book I'm in love with right now, which is Richer, Wiser, Happier um, by William Green. And as he profiles the best and most interesting investors who live a quality life in addition to just being worth a lot of money, um, yep. which is what I love about the book because life is not about money, right? He really dives into the anti-fragility that is a focus of all those great minds. And that's where I also got some listener mail this week giving me a hard time about me suggesting it could be a good time to have a little more cash reserves uh, last week because that sounds like trying to time the market and in the official stance of the show, right? We don't we don't time the market. But I will no, tell I, you that- I, I don't know if that's- I don't think <laughs> you, That's not the official stance of the show. Yes, I love it. Pushback. Um, it's always a good time in my eyes, especially when you know you're in a bubble like we're in and you just don't know when it's going to pop to spend some time thinking about how you could be less fragile, how you could be more resilient. How, so I'm not going to give advice on what that looks like for you or what that looks like for anyone else. But I will tell you that for me, I'm thinking about, okay, what happens when things unravel? And am I 100% confident that I'm positioned where I want to be? And I think for the most part, I am because... I think about that stuff all the time, but it's a worthwhile um, thought exercise, I guess is all I'm trying to say. And it was something that uh, when I when I worked for uh, Jim Collins and we were studying companies too, we looked at that a lot. Like we'd look at the um, debt to equity ratios of companies, cash ratios of companies to understand how those companies that ended up, whether it was you know in the built to last category, good to great, like how they um, um, how they kind of position themselves. And the way that we always thought about it was oxygen tanks. Like that's the way we describe it is keep your oxygen tank full. Um, and I, I think that whether with the timing, the market piece, I think, you know, specific timing, if you're talking about a month, you know, even a year, I think can be tough, but, but macro timing, I think is a little bit different. Like you could say, I, I feel, I would say sometime in the next three to four years, I think we're going to have a incredible buying opportunity, right. Yeah. That, that exists in the market. And I'd like to be able to take advantage of that. That that does not mean keep everything in cash and wait for that to happen. But I think it I think it could or maybe should mean for me at least, given my temperament, to keep that in mind and know that if that happens, you want to be ready, but not just to sit and wait in your basement, right? Like I think that that's a that's a different thing. Yeah, it's a tough balance. You know what's so interesting as I think more about that statement, I would revise it a little to say. In the next three to four years, I think it's likely that there will be a significant downturn. What's funny about where valuations sit with so much right now is some of the stuff might have to be more than cut in half for me to consider it. I mean, I'm a deep value guy, right? But for me to consider it a great buying opportunity. Now, there will probably be stuff international and there will probably be a few stragglers that, that are great buying opportunities. But we're so high right now that a lot of stuff could be cut in half and i'd be like eh, i don't really think that's that's uh there's a margin of safety for me to buy it just yet but you're talking about individual stocks yeah true right? yeah i agree yeah. the i think the market getting cut in half means that you're you're uh like we talked about twilio a few weeks back yeah. right if you look at what's changed it just this is just choosing at, kind of at random uh that stock but i was i was looking at them a few weeks ago and just saying like when Based on uh, their current stock price and when I would feel like it would be a significant buying opportunity, that stock would have to drop like 90%. Yep. I mean, yep. it's a, it's crazy, right? Because these companies that have gone up 7, 8x in the past year, half 
doesn't get you anywhere. <laughs> like it's a, you know, you have to do like what Amazon did when, when the bubble burst, right? You, yep. you have to back, you know, 20 years ago. So I agree. Let me continue what uh, this bubble conversation. Did you see what Mark Cuban and Peter Malark, I think I'm saying that right, did this week? No. Mark Cuban was talking some, uh, he was talking up Dogecoin on Twitter, if I remember correctly. And Peter Malark kind of came at him. They had this little t Twitter battle. They ended up uh, with two bets, a million dollars each, proceeds go to charity, written Ooh. on smart contracts on crypto. I think they used Dow stablecoin, but I could be wrong. Anyway, the second bet, Mark Cuban is taking Netflix and Amazon 50-50 split over the next 10 years versus the S&P 500. So he's saying that Netflix and Amazon 50-50 split will beat the S&P 500 yeah. over the next 10, 10 years. 10 years out. So, and Peter Malark, I don't know much about him. He appears to be the president of creative planning. Um, it's pr basically like, looks like a private wealth manager guy. But so the uh, Buffett bet with uh, Ted, oh, I'm forgetting his last name. Anyway, you're talking Buffett this is like 12 years ago, the hedge fund, yeah. the hedge fund I, versus the S&P bet, right? Yeah, I can't remember who that was. Yeah, uh, Ted Seides. Am I saying that right? He's the he has a great podcast. allocators. Yeah, yeah, the capital allocators yeah. podcast guy. So at the time Buffett took that bet, the valuation of the S&P was pretty like, I call it more reasonable. So it made sense. Now, what's so interesting about this bet is I would almost always over a 10 year period, take a wide range of take the S&P 500 over a growth stock or two, right? But the S&P 500 is so hyperinflated right now that I don't know which is more overvalued, Netflix, Amazon, or the S&P. You know, like, do you yeah, follow me? I, I think this is yeah. kind of an interesting bet. I don't want either <laughs> side of it, really, is what I'm trying to yeah. say. It is interesting. I think that uh, the winner is actually probably going to be determined by when the bubble bursts. I think that's going to be the determinant above anything else. Because if, if the bubble bursts, like, let's say it bursts next month, then I'd rather be on the Mark Cuban side of the bet. If it bursts in four years, I'd rather be on the S&P 500 side of the bet. Yeah, interesting. I, so if you were picking two stocks for 10 years, what would they be? They have to be stocks, so I can't say Dogecoin. <laughs> I actually think the first bet is about Dogecoin. <laughs> oh, really? Uh, that's a good question. Let me. It might be interesting, though. We, we can do this on the pod later or... Um, or just whatever personally, but uh, but I want to think about it. And can you think about it too? Like let's uh, let's figure out what our choices would be. Okay, yeah, cool. we'll we'll hit that up in a couple of weeks, um, or maybe even next week. I don't know. I'm not sure. But <laughs> all right, you want to get back? Let me let me bring us back to the investment talk portion of this. Um, I have a quiz for you on the longest and shortest bear market recovery periods, right? So let me try and set this up appropriately. If the S&P 500 declines by more than 20%, I want to talk about some of those declines in terms of how severe they were. And, and a 20% decline is the marker of a bear market, right? That's what yes. you're Yep. Yeah, thank you. And then um, how quickly the rebound happens. Basically, how quickly you get back to par value. Um, sorry, that's a bond term. How quickly you get back to where you are. So in 19 let's go 1929 market declines by about 45 percent how many days or you can do years 
do you think it took to get back to where we were from peak to trough to peak? The peak of 1929, it didn't get back to that peak until 1954, I'm pretty sure. I mean, like September 22nd, 1954? Gosh, you're good. Uh, so that I told you, that's I look at data all the time. That's a recovery of 7,262 days. September 7th of 1929 to September 22nd of 1954. It's insanity. Insanity. Because today we... And- we, we talk about how, uh, like, the lost decade from 2000, 2010, you know, we talk about. It was, like, a yeah. long period of time. But, yeah, that's, that's a good generation. 2007 is about a 52% decline, uh, peak to trough. And what's the recovery period look like? 2007. I think that got back in 2012. Looks like, yeah, about, I think it's like 2013, but so call that a a five-year recovery, right? What happened since then? So basically 2007, we've basically been riding straight up and to the right, which is super scary. That's how we get to the bubble we're talking about. Uh, Any idea how many days it took us in the 2020 so-called COVID crash, how many days it took us to get back? I don't want to say it was like 60. 90 something like that yeah 126 point here being crashes of significance uh bear markets and long recovery periods appear to be significantly more common uh we'll call it pre-2010 and even pre-1990 than they have been recently and what that means is one you get to a bubble territory very quickly but two the next time a crash shows up there's potential now I hate forecasts and I'm not trying to forecast, but there's, it's probably likely that it's a multi-year recovery period rather than a 120 day recovery period. Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the 120, that's, that wasn't, I've said this before, that wasn't really a crash last year. Like that, I, I, that was a, an emotional reaction to externalities. Like it it was, it was a blip in the radar. It was a big blip. Uh, That's where um, I think that when we, when we look at uh, bear markets, I think that definition of 20%, like broadly at a macro level, sure, makes sense. I mean, it's fairly arbitrary, but makes sense. Um, but you, you have to look at the speed at which it happens because it matters. It matters a heck of a lot. It's kind of similar to uh, in 1987. Yeah. The 1987 crash, it was like, it was over 20% crash in a day. Yeah. Right. And so like the, that speed changes, I think how you view, is this really a, like a complete macro shift that's going to be multi-year or is it not? I think that's a, I I just I think that's really important. So last year I'd equate to similar to what happened in 2018, right? When there was a 2018 quote unquote crash, right. That it happened, but it was really correction, you know, and, uh, and then it just came roaring back. That must not have been greater than it, 20% because no, I don't see I th- it on the I think the it got to like at. 17, 18%. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Something like so, that. Uh, there's an awesome visual here for the listeners in Jason Swig's article this week, The Intelligent Investor. It's called What Happens When Only Stocks Grow Up. And it's this is one of the most captivating visuals I've seen in a long time because it does a really good job of kind of explaining how rare bear markets with long corrections have been recently and how unusual that is. Yeah, I, I don't. I, I want to look at this because, and it just, it's probably, I like, look, I'm, I, Jason Swag is like awesome. So, yeah, I, I think it's a, it's an awesome article, I'm sure. It's just that 
we've basically, if you look since, I don't know, 1950, like a long bear market happens like every decade. Yeah. Like, and so if you, if you just, if you take out last year, right, you've got, you have uh, the 1950 run, which ended it like in the early 1960s, you had a crash, then you had the nifty 50 that came around and then it was 1973, 74, uh, no, sorry, 74, 75 bear market. And then you go forward and you get what happened in 87. Then you go forward, you get what happened in 2000. Then you go forward and you get, you happen 2008, right? So this has just been longer, but it, I don't know. I, I don't see where it's about once a decade, like always. Except for now. This is one of the longest bull markets um, in history. Yeah, we're in two thousand. We're, we're in twenty twenty one. So like we just missed the decade. So if it happens in the next twelve months, like you could say every eight to twelve years, right, or something like that, which is like approximately a decade. Yeah, hey, yeah, no, this, I, this is. A long I didn't know. Period. I was talking to Nostradamus over there. Like, when is this? Do you have a calendar that tells me when this crash is coming? Because I'll like, let you know. I'm, seems I'll like you know, know, man. Just I, like no, clock come rate. come January first, I'll <laughs> let you know if it's next year. All right. Good. Oh, but we're just getting more and more fragile. So yeah, it may not happen, but we're just we're getting more and more fragile, as we talked about. So uh, every everything that could like knock it off will have a more substantial impact. But but whether that thing comes in the next twelve months or so, who knows? But I'm just saying we're not that far off of a decade. That's all that I. That's all I'm saying. So it happens about once a decade. We're not that far off of that right now. I mean, you seem a little flustered or heated or, or just, call, are you calling me an idiot right now? I'm just no. throwing some facts your way. I mean, no, no. are you, <laughs> are you? No, I no, guess I'm, I'm just, just I'm just pushing up. back. Yeah. I'm no, no, no. I, I mean, it makes sense. I'm just, I'm pushing back on like the broad concept that this is different because I haven't seen anything that's different. Uh, so so I, I feel like I've done a poor job articulating. I mean, I don't know that I'm trying to say this is different. I'm trying to say a collection of facts we just put like this is a really long bull market which means prices go higher which means the correction is likely greater and if the collection is likely greater the recovery period is likely greater so that's yeah. kind of the simple oh, hypothesis yeah, yeah, yeah. here is just values are really high and that what that likely means is things drop more and it takes longer to get back to norms maybe i should yeah. just said that speaking of speaking of things going up into the right you know i've dropped commodities a couple times and just I want to give you a, a few facts. There was this Bloomberg article this week called The Price of the Stuff That Makes Everything is Surging, which is it's a I don't know who came up with the title, but it's pretty straightforward. Um, but I, I'll drop like four. They have these four interesting charts in there, corn, copper, aluminum and lumber. And so if you look at the prices of these over the last approximately year, right, roughly the last year. So May last year, if we go to corn. We're at about 320 um, was the, the price per whatever kernel. I don't know. I don't know what the <laughs> units of corn are. Um, and now we're at $7, right? So you, you're looking at a little bit over a doubling in that year. Yeah. If you go to copper, uh, we were at about five 5K. Now we're about 10K. So double, right? Very similar. Aluminum, we go from 1.5 to 2.5, so less than doubling. And then lumber, right? We talked about, you talked about your sawmill consolidation yeah. uh, capacity, uh, 311 to 1.5. That's, so that's like 5X nearly um, increase, 4X, 5X um, increase. This is like insane price changes for things that usually don't shift that this much this fast. And that's why I'm curious as to what with the, we got China trying to build a bunch of stuff and then Biden's infrastructure plan, which, you know, like what's going to happen 
with these prices then and then what's the what are the ramifications right for people like if you take farmers right you you have on one side the what you're selling right the prices are higher so that's great but then you have like poultry farmers who need to feed grain to to their yeah. pigs and whatnot and yeah. like so now your costs have like skyrocketed it's a the ecosystem impact is question mark i don't know right but it, looking at these prices it's crazy yeah, i mean it means all prices are going up in my eyes but this also reminds me of how you were supposed to come over to my house and try and steal my copper pipes and i'm really happy you haven't done that yet i mean my faucets still work so yeah well I mean, not for long did you, did you replace them with something else this is great don't, don't worry uh, about it <laughs> but no i think one commodity prices tend to be uh and and i am far from a commodity expert they tend to be pretty cyclical right um and so i don't expect lumber to be at its current price levels um in even a year i, I mean i think it's natural for the supply and demand economics to take care of some of these issues um people will find things to use other than lumber when they can and uh sawmill capacity will find a way to climb up gosh that's crazy for corn man like what is really corn used for these days because it's not for eating i'll tell you that much did when's the uh, last time you had some corn on a plate of yours and you were like dive it in just probably some holiday I, yeah okay know. so you eat it like twice a year that's kind yep. of my point yeah so um it's not like we have more holidays on the calendar so why is the price of corn doubled yeah, I, that that's that's interesting. I wonder. Um, I mean, it's also uh, used in energy, right? Oil, ethanol. Well, and I don't and know what what the breakdown. High fructose corn syrup is kind of on the outs, but that's still there's a lot of demand there. There's uh, yeah, ethanol. Yeah, gosh, I th to me the real takeaway is just all prices are going up, and it's amazing that the so-called like CPI as a measure of inflation hasn't really spiked yet. But I can't imagine that six months from now people are still going to be claiming that inflation is low because I've seen a bunch of noise about rising prices on all fronts. And I think these four commodities do a great job illustrating that. Oh, so you ready? So um, iowacorn.org slash corn uses. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> I did not think we were going here. I, no, okay. and th this, th this, is a, this is a phenomenal little visual they have here. It's, it's pretty cool. So they have a, it's a picture of a, uh, like an ear of corn. And then next to it, they break down the percentage of that ear that goes to different uses. So yes. really good visual. Um, so 39% is the top. What does it go to? Uh, energy, ethanol stuff. Livestock feed. Okay. And then, then they break that down. I wouldn't even give you the quiz here. I'll just give you the numbers. Cause, um, so the, the top livestock feed is poultry at 28% and then beef at 27%. Um, and then, so after livestock feed next is ethanol and fuel at 27% of this very nice ear of corn. Uh, and then it, then it goes down into, it says exports, food and industrials, 9%. And then residual is also 9%. I don't, I don't know what residual is, but it sounds like a large category of randomness so did i hear this right is uh human food consumption only nine percent of the total corn produced is that so they say food and industrial so i don't know i don't know if that but that, i guess that uh, probably means consumption of some sort like maybe corn that goes in beer you know or, or like corn meal like yeah that. yeah okay yeah. yeah corn syrup like that probably all fits in there yeah okay um yeah so there you go look real-time answers man but even that when you talk about the price uh variation it's not like there's um a hundred percent more livestock to feed 
uh, as opposed to six months ago. You know, it, it's interesting. Um, yeah. I wonder if corn production has taken a dip. Uh, I can't think of any like crazy storms that might have. I mean, yeah. fields, I, it, I think broadly that's what's driving a lot. If you just zoom, zoom way up, what's driving prices of a lot of stuff is the supply of it depleted a lot last year and the demand for it went up or didn't go down nearly in the way that folks wanted to, right? We talked about the chip shortage, um, looking at corn, lumber, right? I think that's kind of the, that's broadly what it seems like is happening. Yeah. I love it. Thanks for the, uh, thanks to our Think, crack Things you don't need to the... know. What's next for you? I mean, I won't, I won't bore you with this. Uh, Vanguard came out with an article that caught but you my are, eye. Hold on. No, you just, I won't bore you with it. Here's my, here's my, I won't bore you with it. No, I, I can give you the deep, deep details, but, uh, value is about to destroy growth. It's, uh, there's an article every week, the latest one from Vanguard. And, uh, we are below the fair value range in terms of those two, uh, metrics and and values already started us come back and when it converges to fair value i'm gonna um gloat on this podcast about it endlessly so i'll put that you, article on the twitter can you define for me like what they consider value and what they consider growth oh this is a great question actually because what they consider value is not perfect i think they're looking at the russell 2000 um, value index so this is a side tangent, and we should do this for another episode. But when people in academic research talk about value, they often use poor definitions of value. The poorest is probably price cheap by price to earnings ratio. And um, that's not my definition of value. But a lot of times those things correlate with basically undervalued stocks. And the movement there will show up in the movement in my portfolio. So it's a great question. But I don't want to. I told you I want to bore you with this. I'll just throw it on the Twitter. By the way, I forgot to mention this last couple of episodes. Twitter is at Skippy Dougals and Skippy Dougals at gmail.com is the listener line. All right. I think you got one more thing for us, don't you? So I got a, I got a question for you. Oftentimes uh, on this pod, we break into topics that are um, tangentially related to investing, like they influence investing, but aren't purely, right? Like we've talked about inequality, we've talked about ways for, um, for to get crypto, right? Uh, potentially internationally, we've yeah, dropped in some Biden's political, yeah, yeah political yeah. stuff. Like, we, so we, we mentioned things that are tangential. So this week on Monday, uh, Basecamp, which is a, it's a, it's a company that um, used to be called 37 Signals, the founder of, or the builder of uh, Inventor, of Ruby on Rails is a co-founder there. So it's kind of, it's a small company, about 60 people that's hot on the technology, you know, yeah. train kind of has like a niche audience. Anyway, they came out with this blog uh, or a memo, I think they released internally and in all hands they had internally, where one of the things they said was that the company accounts will have no political or social discussions. Like they're not allowed. Mm -hmm. um, there, was, there were a few other things that they announced, but that was the one that I want to focus on. Given that how many times like we've talked about it when that's not what the podcast is about, I have a question for you of like what role should companies play in that in your mind? Or is it even possible in in a capitalist society for a company not to quote unquote care or at least publicly care about social and political issues? My initial thought is it's probably not possible. 
I was really taken back by this in terms of I was trying to understand all sides. This received a ton of criticism on social media from from what I saw. And there was part of me that was going, I, I mean, I obviously don't know these people individually or anything. Part of me that was trying to give them the benefit of the doubt and going, I think they're just trying to make the work environment feel less hostile to those who have different beliefs. And then there was definitely part of me that was like well yeah that's impossible and maybe even stupid to try uh, this i was really i i wouldn't even say i picked a side i was just trying to consume all the different opinions because i'm not sure like if i knew these people personally i would probably know if they deserve the benefit of the doubt or not but when you don't when it's just an outside message and you see kind of hate coming from both sides I always try and figure out if I can tell both those stories. And to be honest, Douglas, this one, I don't know. I don't really know what's right and where I stand and if they have good intentions, if they have bad intentions. Like, I'm just trying to get more information here. So I'm not trying to dodge your question, but I'm kind of baffled by, I don't know how to respond to this one. I'm trying to better understand. Yeah, I, I I agree with you that I think it's so it's hard. It's tricky. Um, I I do think that it's not possible for companies to avoid um, discussions uh-huh. like this, especially so I don't know, uh, Jason Fried or Fried, I don't know how you pronounce his name. And, uh, and DHH, uh, David Hanmeyer Hansen are the two founders of Basecamp. And I, I only know them through like readings. Right, yeah. um, books, podcasts, articles, all that kind of stuff. I've been following because the company over, was about pretty well, uh, well. It it was generally admired. I would say, is that fair to yeah. say? Yeah, yeah. I, that, that's that's very much so. And and they are from whether you agree with their perspectives or not, they're pretty transparent and out there and like share with the world. I think that's part of where the the admired comes from. And so, I think from what I've seen in the past of them, like taking what they say at face value is probably pretty is like the way to go. I don't think that there's mm-hmm. anything um, more behind it. The issue is that when they have strong perspectives, like they always bring strong perspectives and they're really transparent about the perspectives. Yeah. And I think that's part of what makes this really hard is for, for Basecamp specifically, because they're going to have a view of the world. And what they're saying is when that view has to do with social political, we're not, we're not participating. And for a, what I'll say is like a, a mission oriented or like purpose driven organization, I think that rubs employees the wrong, wrong way. Uh, so they've uh, lost about a third of their employees, according to what I've seen this week, wow. like including some some top folks. So like uh, from what I've seen, their head of marketing resigned, their head of customer support resigned, um, their head of, um, I think, product design uh, resigned. Right. Like people that have been there for a decade, uh, eight wow. years, seven years, like left. I mean, it's a I, I think that that's what's big. And so that's huge. I mean, so uh, one of the lines um, in there was something along the lines of like, um, it's none of our business what you did this weekend. And so like, then the the counter arguments or the people mocking it on social media were like, uh, Monday morning in the office, right? Like, you show up and you go, Hey, how was your week? Oh, um, let's talk about work. Because everything becomes it everything feels political. I think this is sad. I don't know what triggered this this thought or this memo or this decision for them, but we've talked about how things feel more polarized and it feels like there's more extremes. 
And I think what's unfortunate is a lot of things in the past, I don't know, five or 10 years have become political that I, that 20 years ago, I didn't feel like they were political, you know? And so, um, I like to try and give the benefit of the doubt and saying they were thinking, oh, someone on the the far left or far right might come into our work environment and feel under persecution, and we don't want that. But to your point, is that possible? Probably not. And so how do you navigate the world today as it relates to politics? I mean, I don't know. I, I think it's yeah. really hard. It's really, it's really hard. It's really hard. Um, and especially one of the things that I think makes it hardest is when you take an absolute position in almost anything, at some point you're going to break it. Yeah. Like at, at some point them, th this may or may not occur, but I'm speculating at some point there's, there will be a political or social issue that has a strong business implication for base camp yes. that they yeah. have to get involved with. And now you go, okay, so right. Like why, why is that right? Base camps fully distributed as an example. Right. And if, um, I'm, this is a crazy scenario, but yeah. if for some reason there was some international regulation that came out that said that, uh, if your if your company headquarters is based in X country, you cannot live in Y country and yeah. they have to come out and say, Whoa, hold on. No, we're, you know, now, now you're making a political statement. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So it's just, it's, it's tough to make, it's tough to make absolutes like that. I mean, I think in my old age, I, if you, if you're making absolutes in my eyes, they're more like things like be kind to your coworkers, you know, like, which it might be a cop out, but I, I think there's probably a better way to hopefully get to the same goal. Um, and, and clearly, I mean, so my opinion doesn't matter. And like I said, I'm still trying to form an opinion on this. I think the ramifications of losing a third of your employees probably means they didn't handle this. It, well, it's certainly not having the intent that they yeah. uh, were going for, right? Yeah, but I, I think they knew, and I'm only you know reading this in dribs and drabs and articles. But I think they knew that there was going to be some backlash because they had a um, they had a severance package associated with, or a buyout package. So if you were at the company, I want to say it was for three years or longer. They give you six months if this was a decision that you six okay. months of cash. Um, if you were there less than they give you three months of cash. So like pretty sizable. And so they, I think they knew that there would be people that that didn't like this. I don't I don't know if they had that number in mind. I mean, a third is aggressive and they're they were a 60 person shop. That's now like a 40 person shop is like is what that means in absolute. I think what's so hard like. I don't know what their company offices or their company Slack or their company Zoom calls are like. I mean, it's possible you have people walking around with donkey and uh, elephant flags and calling people names or throwing stuff. Yeah. I mean, you just don't know, you don't right? Know. So yeah. I I feel I feel like I don't have enough information to to take a true position on this, but it, yeah. it's one of the most interesting things that happened this week. And I'd love to better understand what the intent was and if they feel like they accomplished that intent uh, and what happens five years from now, like if they feel like they're stronger or weaker or better where their revenues grow. I mean, to your point earlier, like the reason we talk about stuff tangentially related to investing is because it all ties back to the financials at some point. And how you lead your company is a really interesting 
it's a really interesting case study. There's thousands of books written on leadership of different businesses, and this will be a case study for years to come. Agreed. So let's we'll uh, call Marty McFly and jump in that time machine and then read the HBS case study on this that comes out in like four years. I cannot wait. I, I think that's a wrap. Be sure to rate the podcast and at Skippy Doogles on Twitter, skippydoogles at gmail.com. Hit us up. Boom. Oh.